Please stand with me as we read from Acts 12 this morning. This is the word of God. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And he saw that it pleased the Jews. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened up for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she did not open the gate. But she ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it is an angel. It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and ordered them to be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one accord they came to him, asked, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for, for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we love your word. Help us to understand more of it today. Grant me your power to declare it. Years for your people to hear it. 
Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the church. Thank you for the call. Thank you for hope. Secured in Christ. Amen. Um, following the Lord's resurrection, he eventually uh, met with his um, disciples in Galilee as he told them he would. In John 21, um, he restores Peter, you recall, on the Galilean shore in John chapter 21. Peter, having denied Jesus three times, Jesus asked him on that day, um, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know all things, and so on. And remember, he said then, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my people. He then proceeds to describe for Peter his death. The way Peter was going to die. If you look there, John 21, verse 18, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying but what, by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Peter, follow me. Now, hearing a description like that about the way you're going to die, realizing that it will be violent, um, I, I think we can imagine being disturbed by that. Yay? Shocked? Dismayed? I mean, this is the Lord of glory here, defining for you how you're going to die. Peter, tradition says, was crucified upside down. His arms were stretched out, and he was crucified. And, and he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified by, by my, like my Lord, so crucify me upside down. So Peter, Peter, hearing this revelation from Christ, knowing something now of the providence of God and that which is in store for him, he turns and he sees the apostle John, his brother in Christ, one of the twelve, one of the three, by the way, who were the Lord's inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He, he looks to John, and he wants to know what's in store for him. Lord, what about this man? And the reply of Jesus was stern and terse. What is that to you? You follow me. Remember that? Jesus said, if I want him to remain until I come, that is, if I determine, if I will, if I choose that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You, Peter, you follow me. Okay, this John, the brother of James, there's Peter, he's concerned about John. This John, that the younger brother of James, together one day during the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, we read, came up to Jesus and said this in Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, 
you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. Prepared. The text before us today is the fulfillment of what Jesus had spoken to James on that day. Martyred for the faith, while Peter is arrested but delivered and will not meet his death for another 20 years. Now, we might be quick to condemn Peter for asking, what about John? Or sternly shake our heads at John and James for asking to be seated in places of honor and glory. I heard the chuckles, right? This is what we do. Trying as they did to peer into the providence of God. Those things that have not been given to us. We might immediately quote Deuteronomy 29, 29 to Peter, to John and James. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. We'll be quick to quote that until, <laughs> until it gets personal and involves us. Then we want to know how, when, and why. Anyone besides me? Thank you. Now, oftentimes in applying chapter 12, that is commentators, um, the focus is on God's deliverance of Peter in answer to fervent prayer. All the while, ignoring the non-deliverance of James, which resulted in martyrdom. Some conclude the reasons that James was put to death was because the church was not praying for him. That is ridiculous. You can be sure they were praying for James, one of the apostles, leader of the church. Now, the fact that Luke, the author, has placed these two events side by side suggests the two ways in which God's sovereignty is expressed, physical rescue and non-physical rescue, both should be considered when thinking about God's help in times of trouble and crying out in prayer during those times. Both should be considered. Deliverance and non-deliverance. Now this morning, I want us to look at the account that's before us and then conclude with some lessons um, about prayer that come from this text. Okay, that's where we're headed, okay? All right. That's our introduction. Now, we left off last week in the cosmopolitan city that was uh, a hub for hedonism, um, a vile 
place, a cesspool of iniquity, a place that the Lord decreed to plant a church in Antioch, a place that would soon become known as the cradle of Christianity, the place, chapter 11, verse 26, where the disciples were first called Christians. So this, this significant church growth um, was not without challenge. It never is. Great expansion to the kingdom of Jesus Christ is met with here increased opposition. Enter King Herod. In verse 1, Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. Mistreat them. About that time. What time? Well, it's the time identified back in chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, um, a time in which there was a great famine. It was prophesied there. And that was during the reign of Claudius. It was during the time um, around 44 AD, uh, more than 10 years after Jesus died, was raised, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. So we're 10 years plus past his resurrection. Now, we know that Herod died in 44 AD. Okay, this is Herod Agrippa I, grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one who, who tried to kill Jesus when he was but a little boy, where we read about the slaughter of the innocent ones in Bethlehem, all Male children, two years and under, were to be slaughtered on that day as commanded by King Agrippa I's grandfather, Herod the Great. So what we're shown through this passage um, is the Lord's inscrutable sovereignty, the Lord's mysterious, unfathomable sovereignty, which shows itself to us often through the puzzle of providence. The puzzle of providence and the power of prayer. Okay? That, that's what's in sight here. Sometimes Christians suffer terribly. Sometimes God delivers miraculously. James' situation, okay, he's martyred by the sword, takes up two verses. Peter's deliverance takes up 16 verses. Okay, now think, think through me. Think through this with me. Okay, remember Stephen? Stephen, a prototype deacon, is given all of Acts 7, describing his speech and the details of his death. Stephen was stoned to death in Jerusalem. James, here a leading apostle, no small figure, one of the inner circle of the Lord Jesus Christ himself gets brief mention. Two verses. Yet all of it was according to God's sovereign plan and for the sake of furthering his kingdom. Remember the question I raised with Stephen? Why did such a vibrant, bold, loving, wise young man in Christ have to die? Because it was better for the... Better for the kingdom, according to God's sovereign decreed will. 
John would live to be an old man, the younger brother of James. James would be struck down as a young man. Okay, but, but why? Well, what is that to you? You follow me. That's a picture of us when we ask these kinds of questions because we all ask these questions. We're only human, right? So, now about that time, 44 AD, Herod had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Now, he was most likely brought into a public arena and decapitated. James and John, remember, were referred to many times as the sons of Zebedee. Sons of thunder, yes, but they were the sons of Zebedee. We'll get to the sons of thunder in a bit, sorry. Now, being the sons of Zebedee, that, that was a telltale sign that Zebedee was a man of some importance. Wealthy, probably had financial success, and some decent family lineage or both. Now, remember, we read in Mark chapter 1, verse 20, that Zebedee had a fishing business that was large enough to employ many hired servants. No doubt a successful man. And apparently, being well-to-do, um, also that name had status among the apostles. As you recall, we read when Jesus was arrested in John chapter 18 that John, the apostle, was known to the high priest, and that's, that, that is how he was able to get Peter into the inner courts during Jesus' trial, because John was known by the high priest. So this, no doubt, was due to the success um, in the notability of his father, Zebedee. Now, Jesus nicknamed James and John, the sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder, because of their temper. Zealous, fervent, radical men. When the enemies of Jesus rejected him, you remember John and James wanted to call down fire from heaven? Just, uh, Lord, let us, just let us call down fire and destroy these men. What do you say about that? sons of thunder. And quite simply, this James who was martyred on this day during Jesus' um, earthly ministry, this is one of Jesus' closest buddies, if you want to put it like that. Put to death and he's given two, two verses and he's the first apostle um, to die at the hands of evil, unbelieving men under the command of King Agrippa I. So, here then is Herod. He's a pragmatist. He's a man pleaser who, who curried the favor both of Rome and of the Jews during this day, having taken hold of James, putting him to death with the sword. Verse 3, notice, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he had Peter arrested as well. You know, he's thinking here, hey, if it worked once and I gained the pleasure of these people, let's see, see if it'll work again. But notice... He could not have him executed immediately because, verse 3, it was during the days of unleavened bread, which, according to Jewish tradition, prohibited any kind of execution, lest those days of celebration be defiled. So they throw him into prison. Now, the memory of Peter's escape from prison back in chapter 5 years earlier, no doubt, is in their minds. So notice, King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, assigns, verse 4, 
four squads of soldiers to guard him. Intending, after the Passover, to bring him out before the people and what? Executed. To be executed. So you have four squads of four, each squad serving a three-hour watch. He's chained to two of them. And the other two are outside. They would be outside um, guarding the gate. Two in the cell, positioned with him. Two outside. This is high security imprisonment imposed upon Peter, the follower of Christ. John, having been executed. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. You know, prayer meetings were the arteries of the early church. And we see that's emphasized all through the book of Acts, is it not? Time and time again, they're gathered to pray. Here they are in a house belonging to Mary, the mother of John Mark. This woman would have been the aunt of Barnabas. Remember, Barnabas and John Mark were cousins. And here they are. This is the room where they met following the ascension of Jesus. 120 are gathered. They're in prayer. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. This may be the place and probably is the place, the room in which Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples, very likely. And this is the place where the church gathered to pray here on an occasion other than the Lord's Day. Fervently. Prayer meetings for the early church were not considered optional. They were essential. Arteries of the early church. You know, Charles Spurgeon noted over a century ago, and I quote, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. We, we see that every Wednesday, first of every, the first Wednesday of every month that we gather here in the eight of us that are here. You know, we had corporate prayer meetings when we first started the church, and it started out with, what, 20 or 25, and it was boiled down eventually to just the elders. So we said, why even have them? We'll just pray ourselves. So we have initiated corporate prayer once a month on Wednesdays now, so you're all invited. Amen? You're all invited. Here they are, gathered to pray. You know, prayer today is, is, is treated by some as a, a mere thera um, therapeutic device to make the prayer feel good. And I believe, and I'm not trying to be cynical, I believe most Christians today don't really believe that God hears and answers prayer. Or we'd be praying. The one to whom we pray hears, he responds. More than that, he leads us in prayer. We have the Holy Spirit. He leads us in, in what to pray. And as we're in the word, and we're granted wisdom, we're given discernment, we have the leading of the Spirit, he leads us in what to pray, and then he answers what we pray according to his time. It's all God. This is the communion we have because of our union. 
Union, communion with the living God. They understood this, and they met regularly. Verse 6, on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping, notice, between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. This guy's sound asleep. This is the night before your execution. He's out. Has this brother learned something from our Lord or what? To be at peace like this? Prior to your execution, he doesn't know what's going to happen. He knows what's happened to James. He's next in his mind. And behold, verse 7, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell and struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Notice this angel didn't tickle Peter with a feather. That's how during nap time in kindergarten, one of us would be assigned this uh, pheasant feather to wake up all of our fellow students. We would lay on this little mat and tickle each other. You know, we get to, I got to tickle the little chin of my friends, you know. No, not here. He punched, literally he punched him in the ribs. He jabbed him in the side. Get up, move out, Peter. This guy is out. Out. And the angel said, gird yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. Now, in this day, men wore gowns. It was like wearing a dress. Not like the dude I saw walking, coming to church this morning. No, not com- I was coming to church, and I saw this man walking down the street wearing a dress. Like, I'm going out of my mind today. <laughs> going out of my mind. He had terrible taste, too. Some of these guys dressing like women, I'm like, man, whatever, dude, okay? Now, if I have time to give you the gospel and you don't want to hear it, let let me take you. You know, I have a little bit of taste. (laughs) I digress. Men in this day, (laughs) they, 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 they wore gowns, so the angel says, gird yourself up. You remember in the Exodus, before they depart Egypt, gird up the loins and move out. So you would take up the loins of your skirt and you would tie it up around your thighs so that you would be mobile to go into battle or to run. And he says, gird yourself. And he did so. Put on your shoes, Peter, wake up. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you, that means it's cold outside probably, and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Notice Peter does not wake up and say, oh, I knew you would come, angel. No, he thinks this is a vision. He thinks this is something like that which happened to him back in Joppa where God gave him a vision of the sheep coming down from heaven and all kinds of four-footed animals and beasts and creeping things were on that sheep. And God demanded, Peter, arise, kill, and eat. No, God is working a miracle in this situation at this time for the sake of the kingdom. Verse 10, now when they passed the first and second guard, 
They came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Expecting what? To see his head roll. Herod was a man pleaser. So Peter comes to his senses. He realizes this is no dream. This is literal. This is really happening. And, verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary. He knew where they were gathered. This is the prayer chamber, man. Mary was probably wealthy. This place was large enough, we know, to hold 120. Here they are. He goes to her house, the mother of John, who's also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. The mother of John Mark, who wrote the gospel that bears his name, the one Paul fired. Caused contention between Paul and Barnabas, as we'll see, coming chapters. John Mark started out with them, and then he quit. And the second time they were going to go out on their missionary journey, Paul said, we're not taking him with us. He's a quitter. Barnabas takes him. They double the mission. Later on, Paul commends Mark, and he wants John Mark near him because he's profitable. He's helpful. You never give up on someone, in other words. We learned that lesson a couple weeks ago. So the irony of the narrative is so thick Here they are, beseeching the throne of God, praying for Peter's release, gathered together in this room. Lord, set him free, protect him. And he shows up. When he knocked on the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Now, she, she, the gate would have been tall. She wouldn't have been able to see over the gate. She couldn't see and recognize Peter, but she recognized his voice. Recognizing Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate. She ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate, and they said to her, you are out of your mind, woman. Praying for him to be delivered, he's delivered, and they think she's beside herself. <sighs> have you ever done that? They say, no, this is to say, Rhoda, you're delusional, right? You pray for something, you pray for something, God answers, and you just, it, it, it doesn't measure up in your head. And then as you grow and mature and you see God answer your prayers, usually when that happens, you're brought to tears. That happened to me this week through a text that someone wrote a text that someone wrote to my wife that my wife forwarded to me and I just prayed that prayer like the day before and that morning and I just start crying at my desk. I cry sometimes. I know it seemed like a big, I'm not a hard guy, right? This is a place of authority. You just bring the word. I'll melt. I'll melt like a little girl (laughs) with stuff like that. So they, they say, you're out of your mind. She knocks at the gate. <laughs> she kept insisting, notice. She kept insisting that it was so, but that, they kept saying, no, no, it's his angel. Now, many believed in this day that 
every person has a guardian angel, has a guardian angel, and sometimes that angel resembled the people over whom they protected. That was the thought. Now, do gods, do all God's people? I mean, do we have guardian angels? Uh, there, there's nothing in Scripture that, that talks about that. Remember when Elisha was was delivered? There wasn't one angel there. There was an army of angels. Remember that? So. Though we don't know for certain, this is what we do know, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, that they are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of God's elect, for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And perhaps you've experienced things that are beyond imagination or beyond the natural and that throughout your life you can look back even before you were saved because you're God's elect and he knew that he has saved you that he atoned for your sins and in time he would give you faith to believe has protected you throughout I can recall numerous times I've never seen an angel but I know that God had to do something to protect me in that moment or I'd be a dead man five times over, straight into hell. But by God's grace. So here, maybe they think that Peter has been slain and his angel is roaming the streets. I don't know. But, verse 16, Peter continued knocking and when they had opened the door, they saw him and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand, keep quiet, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison, and he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Now, this isn't the James who's been beheaded. This is the other James. The other James, who would emerge as the pillar of the Jerusalem church. He would take the leading role in the apostolic council, this James is the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. The epistle that bears his name. Okay? Another James. Now, verse 18. When day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers. You think? As to what could have become of Peter, when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to be, to be executed. So Peter's escape no doubt deflated Herod's ego. So he has the prison guard Guards, plural, killed, and he goes to Caesarea. And then verse 19b, notice, begins with the word chi, that is then or and, part of the same sentence, suggesting that Herod, King Agrippa I, left Jerusalem because of the frustration, the embarrassment, the humiliation of Peter's escape. Verse 20 to 23 is almost a footnote about King Herod. There's some political situation in the north, and while he's there, with great pomp and ceremony, he gives this speech, he gives this great address, and the people respond, the people kept crying out, the voice of a God, not of a man. He accepted that kind of worship, 
appropriate only for God. And Josephus, the first century historian, records for us that Herod at this time used to wear a garment covered with silver and would shine, he says, in a surprising manner when the rays of sun touched it. Pomp and ceremony, standing out there, being praised as a god. He doesn't say as Peter did when Cornelius bowed down before him, don't do that, I am but a man. He receives this praise. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him dead because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. How do you like that picture? Now, Josephus again records this, quote, he was gripped in his stomach by pain. He felt everywhere at once. He was laid low. And after five days, he departed this life at the 54th year of his life, the seventh year of his reign. Here in the scripture, we read immediately, he's struck by an angel. The cheering faded, no doubt. Five days later, this pompous fool is devoured from within by some kind of worms or worms. Notice at the beginning of the narrative, here it is on a rampage in order to please men. Arresting and killing church leaders, Peter and James. At the end of the narrative, he's cut down in mid-stride and dies. The first angel shows up to rescue Peter from death. This angel shows up to deliver Herod over to death. God's holy. God's just. And God is merciful. Verse 24. Here's the result of all this. And the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Friends, his kingdom will not be thwarted. Ever. Do you believe that today? Do you pray like that? Do you pray like that? Okay, so let's conclude with some lessons on prayer. Some lessons on prayer from this text. Earnest prayer is highlighted, and in response to this earnest prayer, Peter is delivered. Lesson number one. Lesson number one from the text. Praying fervently does not come out of nowhere. Praying fervently does not come out of nowhere, but comes from a real need, trusting God. Verse 5, Peter's in prison. They turn to God. They pray intentionally, fervently to their father. That's lesson one. Lesson number two, God hears, okay? God is sovereign, so pray because God hears, now, with all this teaching about the sovereignty of God as of late, you may be sitting there asking, if God is sovereign in his acting, what then is the purpose and point of praying? If God is absolutely sovereign, why pray? How does praying make a difference in a world ruled by sovereign God? Ever thought that? You've all thought that. Now, indeed, when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, 
he began with these words. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Well, if that's the case, you might think that Jesus would follow up with, since your father knows what you need, there's no point in you praying. He doesn't do that, does he? He goes on to teach them how to pray specifics. Because your father knows what you need before you ask him. And he grants us what we know is the apostles' prayer. It's not really the Lord's prayer. The Lord's prayer is John 17. But the prayer of the apostles, this is how you pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and, and so on. So why is there such a thing as prayer in a world ruled by sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God, an all-powerful, all-knowing God who ordains all things. Why pray? God calls his people to earnestly pray for specific needs while he draws us into a closer relationship with himself. Prayer changes things. Prayer changes us. Prayer changes us. He's conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. Look, God is fully capable of getting things done on his own, friends. He doesn't need us. He does not need our prayers. Yet he calls us to pray, drawing us into himself, drawing us into what he's, in, what he's doing so that we're able to participate in the workings out of his preordained plan for his kingdom. It's amazing. That is amazing. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done, Lord, really? Is that what I'm supposed to pray? Pastor, is that what I'm supposed to pray? Preacher, thy will be done. God's people suffer. Why do God's people suffer and many godless people do not suffer? Thy will be done. Some Christian couples who would make great loving parents aren't able to conceive children. While the worst parents in the world, terrible parents, have lots of children. True? True. Some unethical, lying, deceiving investors, businessmen they call themselves, live long lives high on the hog. And yet you have a guy, a Christian, who runs his business upright for the glory of God and lives by humble means. True? True. There's nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, from which we read this morning. In chapter 7, Ecclesiastes, look at it. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Friends, we must not look at the good that someone receives in this life or the pain that they've experienced in this life, and say whether that person belongs to God and is pleasing to God or not. Never make that mistake. Because we do not see the whole picture. 
We walk by faith and not by sight. Some people, when they're following God, believing God, trusting God, suffer. They experience wrongdoing. It comes into their lives, and many of them, unfortunately, become angry with God. As if somehow that is a sign that he is displeased with me. I mean, God does chasten those he loves, but that, that just because something happens in our lives where we suffer or wrongdoing comes our way doesn't mean necessarily God is displeased with you. They begin to question God. Why did you allow this tragedy? Why did you allow this trouble? And sometimes they become engulfed in a cloud of gloom. Okay, both of which are natural, by the way, to question why. That's a natural response. And to reside under a cloud of gloom for a while, that's kind of natural. However, some never come out of the gloom. And as a result of a bitter spirit towards God... They either turn their backs on God, the one that they professed at one time and proved to be an apostate, or they spew bitterness intended for God on those closest to them. They're really mad at God. Question, do you believe her? And yes, I've asked myself this question. I never ask you a question that I don't pose to myself first. Do you, believer, affirm God's providential control over all events in life or only over those that have a happy ending? Now, we know that sometimes God delivers his people out of trouble. Peter, out of impossible circumstances. Peter, this guy's chained to two men and then there's two more outside. Sometimes God delivers. Sometimes God heals, but not always. John the Baptist, Jesus said, of all men born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. What happened to him? Beheaded. Stephen, stoned. James, killed. By way, by way of the sword. Okay, we know that God judges the wicked, amen? Amen. God judges the wicked. Scripture's clear. Sometimes we see it in this life. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes the judgment's timely. Sometimes it seems that it's too late. Hitler. Those things that often lead us to ask the why questions are things like this. Okay, why didn't God lower the boom on Herod before James was put to death? I don't know. Why was Saul radically converted and not Caiaphas? Why were you born in America and not Syria? You ever praise God for that? So again... How does praying make a difference in a world ruled by sovereign God? Because he is growing us to pray in line with his will, that his will be done on earth as it is 
in heaven rather than always praying according to our own selfish desires. He draws us into a closer relationship to engage us in participating in his work. So we need not get bitter and spew bitterness out towards one another because we're really ticked off at him. Say ouch if you can't say amen. Now, this is a relationship with God, the one, he, the one in whom he is working to align our thinking with his. This is a relationship that includes love, training, trust, participation, and, and alignment, which oftentimes means realignment. Amen? You know, I often do now with my grandsons that which I used to do with my own son when he was a little boy. Teaching him how to use, like I was teaching Soren, my, my grandson, how to use a screwdriver. So what did I do? Throw it at him and say, go put in that screw in the, in the screen door on the patio? Okay, he's five. No. I take the screwdriver and I put it in his hand and I put my hand over his hand and, and, I, and I teach him how to align it with the screw and then to turn it or to take a hammer and, and how to make the swing, how to make the motion. That's what God is doing with us through our lives. It's called sanctification. That's why we pray to a God who's sovereign, omnipotent, and omniscient. He's engaging us in the carrying out of his will in his kingdom for his glory. Now, my youngest grandson thinks, you know, also when you teach him how to swing a hammer, you teach him that you don't swing it on certain things. And I found a big chunk on the front of my motorcycle fender where the paint's gone, where I, where I saw him. I saw him over there like pounding. I didn't know what he was hitting. It happened to be my motorcycle fender and there's like a big chip out of the thing and but hey, you know, you're, what, what are you going to do? <laughs> what are you going to do? You hug him and you kiss him and you go, here, pound on wood. <laughs> he leads us to pray. He stirs us to pray. We pray and he answers our prayer. This is the work he is doing in and through his people. Amen? Lesson number three. God hears and acts in response even to our weak prayers. That is earnest prayer that shows up as faithless. They prayed for Peter to be delivered, knocks on the door. Rhoda says, there's Peter. He says, you're out of your mind, woman. The Holy Spirit, friends, remember this, when we don't know the words to speak, we don't know the words to cry out to God, the Holy Spirit rushes to intercede for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Amen? You ever, you ever been in prayer and you just go, God, I, I, right? Some traumatic thing. You don't know what to say. You don't even know how to say it. You just groan. The Holy Spirit rushes to, to, to take our, our fumbled words, our confused prayers, and he ushers them into the throne room of Almighty God. 
a bruised reed he will not break. Smoldering wick, he will not what? Quench. Remember that. His answers, his, his answers, his actions are not dependent upon your strength and your polished diction. Never buy into the lie that God did not answer your prayer because you didn't have enough faith. I was studying one day at my house. My wife was going to have some people over. and She had to show them around the house, and I had, like, shorts on and a T-shirt. And I'm like, I don't want to change. So I got in my truck, and I went over to Vaughn's parking lot, and I had my, my not my laptop, what's that thing called? The iPad. I'm writing out notes. I have my Bible here, and, and the window's down, and someone comes up, and he goes, John Leader, is that you? Pastor John, is that you? Remember me from years ago, and this guy, sweet brother, he's a, he's a music leader, he's a worship leader. He serves at another church with this other pastor and faithful ministry and all, and, and we're, we're conversing back and forth, we're talking about old times, we served together years ago, and he said, you know, the church I serve at now, um, our pastor's wife came down with cancer and she was dying and we stormed heaven. I mean, brother, we were on our faces praying that God would deliver. and It rattled us, man. God took her. She died. Because I, I guess we just didn't have enough faith. It's appointed unto man once to die. I guess we just didn't have enough faith. That leads to lesson number four. God always answers prayer. God what? Always answer. You know, we're plagued today by what is called this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, which is no gospel. It's nonsense. It's folly. It's foolishness. Preachers, so-called preachers, tell people, promise people that God always wills healing. He never wills suffering. Dude, what Bible are you reading, fool? Huh? So, in order to escape their folly, when they declare that, and they, and they command a man, a paraplegic, a quadriplegic, who, who happens to sneak through the line because they want to do everything to keep them outside of the prayer line, if one sneaks in and they command the paraplegic, a quadriplegic, to in the name of Jesus, get up out of your chair, and they don't get up, their escape hatch is what? Blame. You don't have enough faith. Don't ever buy into that. Ever. You know, books are written, how to pray so that God will hear you. Newsflash, God always hears every single one of you, one of your prayers. There's no need to yell. There's no need to raise your tone in order to get his attention. And you don't even have to scream, you know, in the name of Jesus. You hear that on TV? 
We pray in Jesus' names, meaning we pray based on the authority of Jesus that he's the only way to the Father. That's all that means. It's not a magic thing that we throw on the end of a prayer. So you can say it as loud as you want in the name of Jesus with a southern draw and all. He hears your prayers when you cry in the corner, helpless and weak in faith. He always answers prayer. You know, we rejoice when we prayed this specific thing and God specifically answers it and then throws dessert on top of it. What do we do? We rejoice and we run to one another rejoicing that God answered our prayer specifically. Amen? And that's exactly what we ought to do. And yet we think he answered that prayer. Why doesn't he always answer my prayers like that? The fact is he always does answer prayers, but sometimes the answer is what? No. Ding. No. No, my son. No, my daughter. We insult God when he doesn't answer our prayers the way we asked him to by not considering it as an answer. No. Jesus, during his ministry, was delivered out of certain situations that threatened his life. How many times did they pick up stones to stone him and he just disappears? Why? Because it was not yet his time. On the night before his death in the Garden of Gethsemane, he falls down on his face. He cries out to the Father three times, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Children, what cup was he talking about? What children? Children, real children. What? God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath. Father, if it's possible for sinners to be saved, let this, your cup of wrath, pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus prayed that night earnestly in perfect, flawless faith and dependence. And the Father's answer was no. It's not possible. It is not possible to atone for the sins of mankind. This is why I sent you, my son. You will have to bear my wrath on that cross, and you're going to have to drink that cup cup to the dregs. Isaiah prophesied this. Did Jesus know this? Of course he knew this. He was God in the flesh. But here's his humanity out in the open, front stage, on his face, praying out to God, crying out to the Father, sweating drops of great blood because of the stress and the anxiety, not of the nails, not of the spear in the side, not of the lashing, but because he would face God's wrath. The Father would turn his face from the Son. He'd be left there hanging as as, as darkness descended upon him, as he suffered the wrath of hell on the cross. It's not possible, son. Perfect prayer. Perfect, faith-filled prayer, flawless, flawless, perfect prayer. Answer, no. That's the gospel if you're an unbeliever. 
Jesus came, did what you cannot do, lived a perfect holy life before the Father. To get to heaven, you have to be perfect and sinless. That is impossible. You're a sinner. You will die because the consequence of sin is death. Jesus came. He never would have died had he not given up his life. No man takes my life, I lay it down. He laid down his life and bore God's wrath on the cross in order that by way of his resurrection, all who put their faith and trust in him get his righteousness on their account. All of their sin was laid on him on the cross as God poured out his wrath against sin and sinners. God judges sin, not the sinner. Think again. So here we go to close. The attempt for Herod to stop the gospel, to take glory for himself, was futile, was pointless. And then Luke adds one, one of his summary verses, verse 24. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiply. What does that say? God's will will prevail. The chapter that begins with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing, as it is this very morning, regardless of what the world says or does with it. Such is the power of God and his inscrutable, that is his mysterious, unfathomable sovereignty. Amen and amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful account. We thank you that you are, that you are faithful and true to us, um, even while we are so oftentimes faithless. So bolster us, Lord, we ask by your grace, the presence of your spirit, to be a praying people, more and more aligning ourselves with your will according to your word for your glory as you sanctify us by way of the word in spirit and truth. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.